Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Joe Farrell, Joe Farley, and Lawrence Knorr, authors of Pennsylvania Patriots. We are with Lawrence Knorr, Joe Farley, and Joe Farrell. Uh, They are the authors of this book, Pennsylvania Patriots. Uh, Joe Farrell, why did you write this book? Well, this book is actually part of an effort to visit and, and uh, write about the graves of all of our founders with the, uh, with the semi-quincentennial, that's a mouthful, uh, of our country coming up in 2026, we decided that we would make an effort to visit the graves of all of our founders and then write about them. And this, we did volume one uh, last year, and then we decided to do a book just on Pennsylvania, since we're Pennsylvanians, uh, uh, and then we'll go back and complete the volumes two, three, and four of the overall graves of our founders. So this was like a, a, a detour, but one that we were anxious to do being Pennsylvanians and knowing that Pennsylvania is going to be the, the center of this celebration in, in 2026. Um, Pennsylvania is where it happened. Joe Farrell, how did you select the people in the book? Well, actually, that would be a better one for Larry to answer, since he put together most of the criteria for identifying what we consider to be a founder. Yeah, I'll, I'll take the blame for the controversial decision about who's in the book and who's not. But uh, essentially, it's uh, four founding documents. If you sign the Continental Association, the Articles of Confederation, the Declaration of Independence, or the Constitution, you're in. And that's most of the people on the list of over 200. But then you also have major generals who were, who made a major contribution. There were some major generals who were uh, not so good we didn't include. Anybody else who was otherwise noteworthy, heroic, or made a major contribution as maybe a founding uh, cabinet member, maybe was a president of Congress, that kind of thing. So people of uh, the upper echelon is what we had to limit it to. Yeah, it's debatable. I mean, where do you stop? And so we, we've had debates about that many times. Uh, you know, who's in, who's out? We've dropped people off the list. We've put people on. So we think it's pretty static now, though. We're pretty settled. I mentioned the Continental Association. People may not be as familiar with that. What is that? So the first Continental Congress, when they got together, um, it was the first time that the colonies were collaborating. And they came up with a protest to the king that really was a precursor to the Declaration. And this was collaborating on um, boycotting a number of goods and things, and also showing some grievance towards the king. So So when you're looking at these uh, grave sites and visiting some of them, how do you know who's who in terms of what what they signed, what they didn't sign? Well, that's just done uh, through research that, you know, we uh, identified the people uh, largely using our own personal libraries, the Internet, um, newspapers, uh, books, um, and put our list together. And once we, once you had the list together, then it was just a matter of researching uh, their lives, what they did, putting together the stories, um, and then making the visits to the cemeteries to get pictures of the graves, which has been a great experience for us. 
those trips. I mentioned that you had arguments about who was in and who was out. Uh, what, did you, what did you argue about? <laughs> oh, well, I guess I'm trying to think of somebody we booted out. Well, we just had an argument before we walked into this room about Trench Cox. Trench Cox, yeah. yeah there's one you can talk about. Well, he's in. <laughs> yes, but we argued about him. We all wonder why he's in. He makes our, <laughs> makes our list because others suggest he should be in, right? Yeah. Well, who was he? Well, Tenchcox is a, uh, is a very uh, interesting character. Um, he was a, um, it seems, based on everything I could find out about him, that he was a uh, very manipulative self-aggrandizer. He, um, he, he um, um, was more interested in business than in politics. And uh, he, he, um, he, he, Signed up for the. For, he was from Philadelphia. He, he signed up uh, for the uh, Continental Army. After getting in, and for a few months, he decided he didn't want to fight, and so he resigned and went to New York, which was in the, which was in British hands at the time. Then, when the British came to Philadelphia, he marched in with with the British and set up shop in Philadelphia, all during. The, the battles for the Philadelphia area, Germantown and, and uh, Brandywine, he was like doing business with, living in Philly and doing business with the British. They, 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 he was a big favorite of theirs. And so um, and then when the British left, he stayed. And he suddenly was an advocate for uh, independence, but he wasn't, I mean, they, they called him Mr. Facing Both Ways. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that well, was his nickname. So the reason why I think he's included is because he was an assistant secretary of the treasury, the first, during the Washington administration. Right, under Hamilton. Yeah, and he's also known for being a big supporter of the Bill of Rights, the Second Amendment. So you get some credit for that. So he, perhaps he's surviving to this day for the more, more for that reason than anything else. He changed parties three times, <laughs> always. You know, he, he became, you know, he was a Whig and then he became a, uh, a Federalist under, under the Washington administration and then became a Democratic Republican when Jefferson took over and worked in the Jefferson administration. Who was somebody that uh, was cut from the book that was really on the bubble, who mm. you argued a lot about? Mm, that's a tough one. Yeah, I'm trying to... Well, there so. was one that we, we really debated. It was, was Allen from Philadelphia. Yeah. And the, the Richard Allen. And he was a minister, a founder of the AME Church. Uh, so I think the reason why we ended up not including him is because he came from a later era. He was more in the Federalist period, not so much involved in the Revolution. So we had to be pure to the Revolution and the founding of the nation. Um, so that, that's really why we, we stuck with that decision. But that was a tough one to make. Now, the introduction to the book is by former Governor Ed Rendell. How did you get him on board? Well, that was, we actually uh, arranged a meeting with him, not so much to talk about the book, but to talk about uh, an effort we're involved in to get uh, uh, people and organi organizations involved in restoring some of the graves that are in bad condition. And he was very receptive to that idea and has stayed in touch with us over the months. And when we wrote the book, we thought, well, let's ask him to write the introduction. And we gave him the opportunity, and he was more than happy to do it. And, and we're thrilled that he did. We think he did a terrific job, too. So he writes in there that this book is more than an excellent guide to educate Americans on the beginnings of their storied history 
it is also a call for action. At the very end of the book, you do have a little paragraph on the call to action. What is that? Well, we, we, we were shocked at, I was shocked, I think we all were shocked, sure. at the condition of some of the graves of some of our founders. And they deserve to be memorialized, we feel, much better than they are. And so we are trying to get the um, National Commission for the 250th uh, celebration and the Pennsylvania Commission, we're trying to get them to do something about it, to adopt it as a goal to, like, to, to remove, uh, like reinter or, or refurbish or renew some of the graves of the founders because they're in terrible condition. We have a website and we have a wall of shame on the website and there's like 40 something graves that we put in the wall of shame because they're in such bad shape. Basically, while we were doing the research and visiting the sites, uh, you know, over 200 graves, we've been to just about all of them now. Yes. It, you could split it up about a third, a third, and a third. So a third of them are in very good condition. A third of them are average condition, which is your typical worn tombstone in a cemetery. And a third of them are, are very rough. And in fact, a number of the founders don't even have a grave. Uh, their bodies are lost or uh, we just don't know where they were buried, or you know, the, we, they're buried in a cemetery, but we don't know where in the cemetery. So we feel that uh, the Wall of Shame addresses that. Uh, so when did you all become interested in cemeteries? Oh, let these guys talk about. Yeah, that goes back. Um, back in uh, when I retired after 35 years with the Commonwealth, I guess 2010. Joe had written a book already, and I started talking to him about doing something together. And uh, after we bounced around a few ideas, uh, we came up with the idea that there's a lot of famous people buried here in Pennsylvania. And so we started a, a, a series of books called Keystone Tombstones, which are basically uh, short biographies of famous and infamous people buried in the state. And to date, there are three volumes, uh, plus my, actually there's three, volume one, volume two, volume three, there's a sports volume, a Civil War volume, a Gettysburg volume, Regional and uh, too. Yes, and we're working on volume four right now. So that's something that, that's how this whole thing got started. Now, are there any favorite people that you've come across as you've been doing this? I mean, obviously, people you've included in the books, but anybody that stands out for each of you as, as somebody special? We actually talked about that um, earlier, and uh, I guess we all think that, like, our favorite guy is Ben Franklin. But um, Larry wrote the Ben Franklin chapter. Yeah. Well, I'd hate to say that we all agreed that Ben Franklin's our absolute favorite person, but hard to top Ben Franklin as far as his importance, what an interesting person he was, all the things that he was into. And I think without Ben Franklin, we don't have a United States of America, just like without George Washington, we don't. He, uh, he was sort of the, he was our lead diplomat. He was also perhaps the, the wisest person among uh, the delegates at the different conventions. If you sat down with him, what would you ask him? Oh, uh, what's your favorite wine? <laughs> how was Paris? I don't know. Uh, how'd you hang? How'd you keep all these guys together? How'd you keep them from? One, one of the interesting things that I like about Franklin was that he was against breaking with England uh, until he visited Ireland and saw what the British were doing to the Irish people. And then he wrote a letter back to a friend here that said, 
there may be no way, other way than revolution. You know, and he changed his stance toward the revolution. Where is he buried? He's in Philadelphia in Christ Church in, in Philadelphia. Very nice grave, um, heavily visited. Uh, yes. Yeah, very nice. People tend to throw pennies on it. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Penny Actually, they, they say that they raise uh, like three to $4,000 a year. Just that, from pennies? Just from the money that's been left on his grave. Yes. Why, why do they leave money? Yeah, Poor Richard. A, yeah. Yeah, the saying from Poor Richard, a penny saved is a penny earned. Yeah. yeah. In yeah. terms of favorite people, if I could just interject, one yeah. guy that I think is kept in the background a lot people don't know about is Hyman Solomon, who uh, is buried in Philadelphia. Uh, he was Jewish, actually born in Poland, uh, traveled through Europe, became fluent in eight languages, uh, came to the country, was arrested twice by the English. Um, once he was put on a prison ship that where he improved his position, uh, got better food, better accommodations, by working as a translator with Hessian soldiers for the, who had been hired by the English to fight the war. And what he did in that position was he convinced 500 of those people to desert. And later, uh, he was arrested and actually sentenced to death. But through the Sons of Liberty in New York and bribing a guard, they got him out and he escaped to Philadelphia. He eventually financed, he was a, one of the wealthiest men in the country, basically financed uh, the uh, revolution. And, and the country never paid him back. He died bankrupt and penniless. You mentioned in the book that he, he uh, provided financial support to people like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, but uh, without interest. How did yes. that work? He just did, he loaned them the money, no interest due, and the other thing is they never paid him back. <laughs> so <laughs> it didn't work out well for him at all. <laughs> but that's, I mean, he was, a, he was a patriot, you know, that few people know about. And he's buried in? He's buried in Philadelphia in a Jewish cemetery, but again, it's a grave that they don't know where he is because when he was buried, his family couldn't even afford a headstone. There are two memorial markers there noting that he's buried in that, somewhere in that cemetery. So when somebody doesn't have a, a I mean, there's a, that type of marker, but not a gravestone, are you going off uh, various documents that, historical documents saying that he was buried there? Is that how you're finding those sites? Yeah, there's, yeah. Yeah, there's usually some kind of record to it. And understand the books are primarily biographies, but we're trying to locate the graves so we can visit and honor them, but also get some photographs of that too. And you know, another mystery is, is about Mifflin and Lancaster. I don't know, you love to talk about Mifflin. Well, yeah, um, this, is, this is one that sort of upsets us, I think. Thomas Mifflin devoted almost his entire life to public service. He was in the uh, colonial legislature, then he uh, was elected to the First and Second Continental Congress. He, um, he's, 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 he joined the Philadelphia militia and was kicked out of the Quaker church for it, which was his his church and hurt him deeply, but they, because he wanted to fight, <laughs> they, then he joined the um, Continental Army. He, um, he, 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 he led forces on, at the troops at the Battle of Long Island and then uh, uh, was in the, he, he had tremendous military record. He, um, he was a, the, uh, President of the Congress, the, uh, af after the war he became President of the Congress. While President of the Congress, he presided over the, uh, the Treaty of uh, Paris, which ended the revolution. 
and he was the president that uh, accepted Washington's resignation as commander-in-chief, which was, is one of the great moments in American history, according to loads of historians. He, he presided over the committee that, uh, oh, and he signed the, the uh, Constitution. He, he was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention, signed the Constitution, made great contributions to the Constitutional Convention, then presided over the committee that wrote Pennsylvania's um, uh, Constitution, was elected the first governor and in uh, 1790 and served three terms and, uh, and, and, then and then died in 1800, so poor he was a pauper and he had to be buried by the state. So he did all of those things, and there's uncertainty about where his remains are, and he's, in our opinion, not properly memorialized. He was buried at Trinity Lutheran Church in Lancaster in their cemetery. In the 1840s, they relocated all the bodies in, this, in that cemetery to different cemeteries, but not his. We don't know why. <laughs> Haim and Thomas Wharton, who was a, another businessman prominent during the colonial times, during the revolutionary times, th there's a marker, a state historical marker, in front of the church that says uh, that the church is this, was founded in this date and is this old, and on the grounds are the remains of Thomas Wharton and Thomas Mifflin, governor of Pennsylvania. That's all it says. Then at, at the base of the church, there's a marker that says that he's, that it, I guess implies that he's buried there at the base of the church. And there's just a little marker. It's usually covered with, it's hard to see or find even. We have an idea that we want to get some LIDAR, ground radar, and be able to we could get permission to search that just to prove whether there's a grave there or not. No, because okay. we would never know that it was Mifflin. Uh, uh, the story gets worse in the sense that uh, I talked to the uh, Historical Society of Lancaster, and they said, talk to the church, talk to the church. They, they didn't want to, like, discuss it. We, we talked to the church. They said, yeah, he's buried out there right where it says he is. But then Joe talked to an elder of the church and got a little different story. Yeah, when I, they, I talked to someone there who basically told me that they know where Wharton's buried. He's Wharton is buried in a section of the church where the old altar used to be, under that altar. Uh, but they're not sure where Mifflin is buried. And there are some that surmise that he's still out uh, where he wasn't originally, which is now a parking lot, yeah. that he's buried under the parking lot. There are, some people that, grave. That there are some people that believe that. So there's some mystery around that, and he's certainly under-memorialized for all he did. Now, at the end of some of these chapters, you, had, you list uh, different sites that are named after some of, the, some of the figures. Now, Mifflin, there is a town named after him, right? And a county, yeah. 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 And he was a pretty accomplished fellow. Uh, another accomplished person that is often forgotten is James Wilson. Uh, who was he and what did he, what did he do? Wilson's one of my favorites, uh, actually. Um, he signed both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Um, the historians that I've read that have really studied the Constitution, they rate him as the second most influential member at the Constitutional Convention, um, just right behind James Madison. Um, 
As a matter of fact, uh, they described uh, his mind as a brilliant ray of light uh, during the debates. Um, he spoke often. He was in favor of a strong executive. He realized the need for compromise. Um, and then he eventually became uh, a Supreme Court justice. Washington had made him a Supreme Court justice when the government under the Constitution was formed. And unfortunately, like many of the founders in those days, he got into land speculation that didn't go well. He ended up in a debtor's prison. And then his uh, son got him out of the debtor's prison, but he had to flee to the South to avoid other creditors. And he actually died, I believe, in one of the Carolinas. I can't recall which one. And he was originally buried there. Uh, but eventually his uh, remains were transferred back to Philadelphia, which is how he came to be buried in Philadelphia, which again Phil goes with our idea because we would like to, we'd like to move some graves right now, some of the less kept graves, and get them into possibly Philadelphia. You know, there's something about Wilson to remember too, and that is Franklin, at a key moment in the Constitutional Convention, wanted to speak, you know, frail Franklin, now very elderly, and uh, his words about how to bring the nation together, he had Wilson read his speech for him because Wilson was such an articulate speaker, such a great speaker. And it was Franklin's words, but Wilson's uh, theatrics and his ability to speak uh, that helped bring them to a, a vote and make it happen. Now, there was another incident associated with James Wilson, the Battle of Fort Wilson, which oh, I yes. assume Fort Wilson was his house, right? Yeah. Yes. What, what happened? That was, uh, he had actually, he was, of course, uh, an attorney. And he got into a, a dispute with the, um, the governor at the time, Governor Reed, I guess, was the governor of Pennsylvania, because he defended 23 Tories, people that had been loyal to the English during the Revolution. And he was defending them in order to protect their properties from being seized by the state of Pennsylvania. And he prevailed in court. And uh, the governor, Governor Reed, I believe, riled up crowds and they formed a mob. Uh, they got two cannons, actually, and went to his house in Philadelphia to storm his house. Uh, and eventually, troops showed up to calm down the matter, but not before someone in the house was killed and two people outside in the mob were killed. And that became known as the, yes, the attack on Fort Wilson, which was his home. Now you mentioned uh, you mentioned Reed, Joseph Reed. Uh, you have a chapter on him as well. Yes, and what's interesting, is that he was so vehemently against loyalists, but yet he himself had questionable loyalty, and, they, and was, his loyalty was questioned throughout his life. He, uh, he was the guy that, I would say, broke Washington's heart. Um, he, he was, Washington loved him and made him an adjutant, and, and, and relied on him, and he gave very good advice. He was a good communicator. He knew how to communicate well and knew that everybody that needed to know this knew it. And he, had, he, he was just smart, a very smart guy. But he wasn't loyal to Washington, and he wrote to a General Lee, I think it was Charles Lee, General Charles Lee, um, that, that he ought to be in command and not Washington, and that Washington, you know, if he were in, would be in much better shape if Lee were in command. Washington, Lee wrote back and, like, thanked him for the compliments and all of that. Washington inadvertently discovered the letter. Uh, Reed wasn't 
there the day that letter came in, and since it was from General Lee, he thought it might be important. Washington thought it might be important, and he opened it himself and read it and was absolutely heartbroken that his top guy, the guy he relied on, had turned on him or was not supporting him. And so they, uh, they never had the same relationship. Uh, three weeks after Princeton, uh, Reed uh, resigned from his position. And uh, he returned to Philadelphia, and this is strange. I mean, it, people questioned his loyalty and, and or whose side he was really on. And, and uh, he, um, then he served without pay as a volunteer aide in, in battles of uh, Brandywine and Monmouth and a, a couple of uh, other battles where he s served as an unpaid aide, which I guess was to show that where his loyalty was and to allay the suspicion that he wasn't a true patriot. Now, he also later brought charges against Benedict Arnold. Yes. Uh, was that before or after Arnold's treason? That was, that was before Arnold's treason, yes. And, they, and some people speculate, some historians speculate that that might have led to Benedict Arnold's betrayal, the fact that he was being given a hard time. <laughs> now, you mentioned earlier that you had written the chapter on Benjamin Franklin, right? right. So I assume that that means that you could divide the chapters among yourselves? Is yeah. that how you wrote the book? We had like a draft. <laughs> yeah. Very much, very much like a draft. Since I'm the publisher, I get to pick the best ones for myself. <laughs> Did you have to fight over any of those? I think we were fighting we're not to do them. I think we're trying yeah. to pawn off certain ones on certain people. I think that's true too. He, he was usually downhill. Farley got got something he didn't want. <laughs> I enjoyed doing them all, though. So it, was, it turned out all right. Now there is one. Uh, um, um, Patriot in the book, one founding father that is not buried in Pennsylvania. Actually, there's a couple, but go ahead. Oh, there's a couple? Yeah. yeah. Well, George Clymer was who I was thinking of because, well, you can, you can talk about George Clymer. Well, Clymer, what, how many documents did he sign? Three of them? We signed at least both the Declaration, Declaration and the Constitution. Yeah. He's one of only five. Plays, plays a major role in Pennsylvania. And just to shorten the story, he ends up being buried across the river in New Jersey in a very precarious position today. It's, it's an old Quaker church, but it's in Center City and within feet of a parking lot, sort of like Mifflin. So here's this guy who's this prominent person in the Revolution who signed several founding documents. And, and he's not even buried in his home state. <laughs> so He's buried where he didn't serve, didn't live, and didn't die. Yeah. <laughs> Another figure that you write about is John Barry, I would call the father of the U.S. Navy. Who is he? John Barry. So you've heard of the Commodore Barry Bridge? That's John Barry. And I'd say John Barry was one of the great American heroes. He's uh, not talked about as much. Uh, John Paul Jones is the famous Navy uh, captain and admiral who gets a lot of the credit. But Barry came a little bit before him. He was, he was an older um, admiral. and. He really helped to form the, the initial Navy, the initial ships in the Philadelphia shipyard, and he was also a renowned captain. So it was Barry who set the record, the speed record between England and America. And he was also used on uh, several diplomatic missions. He was the captain chosen to, to sail uh, with those diplomatic missions. A great hero in a number of naval battles and uh, buried, in, buried in Philadelphia. Very you deserving. Know, in doing this book, we found a number of fathers of the American Navy, 
because we had John Paul Jones, you mentioned Barry, we also had Joseph Hughes, who as a member of the Continental Congress was the first secretary of the Navy. Um, he had used his influence, uh, John Paul Jones was his friend, and used his influence to get him a command in the Navy. And he was also, uh, by trade, he, he was, uh, he owned loads of ships, and he donated his ships to the Navy. So for that reason, a lot of people consider him the father of the United States. So we've, yeah. this, we've, we've discovered a lot of fathers of the Navy in, this, in doing this work. Now, there are a lot of legendary figures who come out of the American founding era. Uh, one of those is Molly Pitcher, but her original name was Mary Ludwig. Uh, how did she become known as Molly Pitcher? Well, Molly, yeah, there were actually a number of Molly Pitchers in the sense that Molly was a, a very common name at the time. It was short for Mary, Margaret, it was a lot of those. And pitchers are just what water was carried in. The reason she became known as Molly Pitcher was that she uh, married a, a guy named Bill Hayes, who uh, was a part of, would uh, join the Continental Army and was uh, sent to Philadelphia. She moved from Carlisle. She was a servant in a doctor's home in in, in uh, Carlisle. Moved to her, where her parents lived in Philadelphia to be closer to Bill Hayes while he was in, in the service. Um, Hayes became a a um, artillery man after von Steuben came to Valley Forge and took over training some of the troops and he trained him as an artillery man. She became then what was known as a water girl. The artillery guys needed water to cool the cannon and to wet the uh, the, um, the the flag that they uh, used to uh, clean out the inside of the cannon with the and it needed to be wet to dampen any uh, sparks or anything that were inside before they, before they reloaded it. So she was a water girl. And during the Battle of Monmouth, her husband went down. He, they, it, he, whether it was from a wound, we're not sure, historians aren't sure if, if it was a wound or whether he just uh, passed out from the tremendous heat that day. But she stood in for him and took over uh, uh, and, beca and, and became known as Molly Pitcher. Uh, she got commissioned as a sergeant, and she was then called Sergeant Molly after that battle. And um, she returned to Carlisle, and um, her husband died, and she married a guy named John McCauley, who <laughs> wasn't a very good marriage. And he mysteriously disappeared and nobody knows what happened to him. <laughs> and she was subsequently granted a pension by the Pennsylvania legislature of $40 a month. And on the 100th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, uh, 1876, the people of Carlisle erected that monument over her <coughs> grave in the old graveyard in, in Carlisle. Now, there are a few of the figures in the book that are connected to the Conway Cabal. What was that? Well, the Conway Cabal, uh, there was a point in the Revolution where the, some in the Congress and some in the Army were concerned that Washington, because of the defeats that the Army had faced, that maybe he wasn't up to the task. And General Horatio Gates um, was seen as a rival. And so I know that several of the people we wrote about 
were involved in that. I know Mifflin actually plays a part, and I'll mention yeah. Mifflin. I'll let these guys talk about some of the others. So Mifflin, you know, he gets wrapped up in that, and perhaps one of the reasons why maybe today he's not honored like, like he should be by by some of those who remember the revolution, uh, because there was a period of time when they were thinking of betraying Washington. Of course, it was found out, and it never happened. But. Um, yeah, so who else do we have in the Conway Cabal? I think Dr. Benjamin Rush was involved in the, in the, in the Cabal as well. And I, he's a signer of the Declaration who uh, eventually went to work uh, with the Army and in his capacity as a doctor and was appalled at the, uh, the situation of the way uh, wounded uh, Continental soldiers were treated and the, and the filth and, and he filed formal complaints with, with Congress that were basically uh, found, they, 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 were, they were thrown away, they said they weren't valid. And, um, and, but he was among the people that felt we needed a change of leadership uh, running the Army. So he was involved. He's one of them. It's really ironic that Mifflin was part of that cabal and then Washington submitted his resignation and was accepted by Mifflin. The irony of that is yeah. amazing. Yeah, one of the great moments. Now, one of the interesting things I, I found while reading this is that one, one of the figures in the book has a crater on the moon named after him, David Rittenhouse. Oh, How does a founding father get a crater on the moon named after him? <laughs> well, Rittenhouse was sort of like the Sheldon Cooper of the, of the revolution. <laughs> he was this uh, boy genius who um, was a, became a scientist and uh, great surveyor and also known for uh, having salons in, in his home in Philadelphia where some of the smart people of the revolution would gather and talk about ideas. Uh, he, he was known as an astronomer, a uh, very good astronomer at that time, one of the few uh, here in, the, the, in, in this continent. And I think he uh, recorded a transit of Venus which got a lot of attention in London. So uh, his contributions to astronomy, I think, make him noteworthy, and, and somebody in some recent times decided to name a crater on the moon after him. I'm not sure when that exactly that happened, I don't recall, but yeah. You mentioned that he was a surveyor, and you know, one of the things about Pennsylvania's borders that's weird is that little semicircle between the border of Maryland and Delaware, and he was involved in, in, uh, in drawing that, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's like a perfect semicircle. So, very well done. Of course, you have Mason and Dixon also involved in drawing the lines uh, along the southern border. That's a great point is, you know, early on, the lands had been settled closer to the coast, and as far as the inland boundaries, not, not much had been defined. So, they're surveying also all this new land that the settlers were taking, uh, surveying was a really big profession in those days. Now, another legendary figure was Betsy Ross. Yes. Uh, how are the are the legends true? Well, uh, the legend about her and the flag actually came about around the hundredth anniversary of the of the uh, um, of the formation of the country, the, the Declaration. When the country was getting ready to celebrate, it was actually her grandson that put together a paper that told the story of Washington and two other members of the Continental Congress coming to her with an idea for a flag, um, and that then she is, was, has largely been given credit for creating the first American flag. Uh, if you go to Christchurch Cemetery, 
in Philadelphia. There's a man buried there by the name of Francis Hopkinson. And if you read his memorial, it says designer of the American flag. And uh, it appears that that he did do that because he actually, he was working for the Department of Treasury at the time, and he put in a request to Congress to be reimbursed for the work he did designing the flag. He asked for a, uh, a cask of wine in, in repayment, which they said, you, you're getting paid by the government now, we're not giving you that. Uh, but it, it is possible, people that have really looked into the Bets, Betsy Ross story do believe that she did sew a flag and that she may have had offered suggestions to the design that don't have it be a square, have it be a, a, a rectangle and things like that. So she definitely had a hand in it, uh, but uh, she probably didn't design the flag itself. And Rittenhouse had something to do with the stars on the flag apparently as well. Another figure you talk about is William Henry Drayton. And he, uh, you say that in South, Car South Carolina sent him on a mission to Georgia at one point. Uh, what, what was his mission? Yeah, uh, that was something that uh, th South Carolina was trying, they wanted to, to combine both states into one, into one state. And, uh, and he was sent to argue that point, actually did argue it before the legislature, and it, uh, it was voted down. And then he tried to do it again on his own, and the governor uh, actually put out a warrant for his arrest because he wanted this thing quelled. And at that point, he gave up the quest to an attempt to unite the both states. But yes, that was, that was a movement back then. So how did somebody from South Carolina end up buried in Pennsylvania? Easy answer to that, they died here. Yeah. And it's a long way to take them home in, in those days without refrigeration, so, <laughs> yeah. So in your book, you, you mentioned uh, each of the different cemeteries where, where the entries in the book are buried, and I counted them up for some of them, and I noticed that Christ Church Burial Grounds has probably the most of them, or it was around 10 in my count. Uh, what, what would people see if they went there? It's, um, it's a very old cemetery. Franklin, of course, is the, I guess, the cornerstone, you might say. He's in the corner of it, and that's people come in and they visit um, uh, Ben Franklin's grave, but it's just an old graveyard <clears throat> with lots of uh, interesting graves and interesting people buried there. Um, it's not, uh, it would cost like a, a dollar to get in or something. Yeah, they, 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 they charge an entrance fee. But you can see Ben Franklin from outside. Yeah, I'd say, uh, my opinion, I mean, it's very much a typical early colonial cemetery. The tombstones are worn, they're not in the best of shape. Uh, but yeah, there's a large concentration there. Uh, you know, one thing that we became aware of as we were doing this research is Pennsylvania has more patriots associated with it. Uh, than any of the other colonies. And that makes sense since it's one of the largest population states after Virginia, but also the hub of government. So. One of the stories that, my favorite stories and what I learned from writing this book is about Charles Thompson, who I think is an amazing story, although a little bit depressing. Um, he was, um, um, Born in Ireland, his father uh, brought his, uh, him and his two brothers to, uh, to America. His father died right off the coast just as they were arriving in Delaware. 
his father died, the captain apparently embezzled the money that the father had on account at the ship, and so the boys were orphaned. Now, Charles was lucky; he he, he was wound up in good hands. Went to I think the first public school. They say it was the first public school in America. It was the London Academy, and and, uh, and while there, he, he befriended Ben Franklin who, when he finished school, recommended him for a job at the Philadelphia Academy, which was the forerunner of the University of Pennsylvania. He, he uh, got a job there, became a big leader in the Sons of Liberty, and a very vociferous proponent of independence. So much so that they called him the, the um, Sam Adams of Philadelphia. And. Uh, he got elected to the first Continental, first Continental Congress, and on the very first day of the Congress, was unanimously elected to be secretary. He was trusted that much and respected that much that he was unanimously, and this is a time when all these factions aren't agreeing on anything. You know, it's, the states all have their own factions in the South and the North and blah, 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 and Massachusetts. Everyone agreed that he should be the secretary because he was so trusted and so s smart. And so for 15 years, he was the only secretary of the Continental Congress. Congress one, Congress two, and then the, um, and then the um, uh, Confederation Congress. <clears throat> so he kept copious records about everything. His, his name was as associated with the truth. If the people waited, colonists waited. This is a period of time when communication is very difficult between the colonies. They waited until they saw his signature on a document, and then it was the truth. That's how, you know, uh, how much uh, uh, credibility he had. Um, he uh, he uh, signed the Declaration of Independence. He was the only non-delegate signer of the Declaration of Independence, because when he signed it, it meant, yes, this happened. This is a, a true document. And he was the one who went to Mount Vernon to inform Washington that he had been elected president. Now, during this time, while he's secretary, he's preparing a document that's telling the history of our founding. It's over a thousand pages long. And then after he resigns, he destroys it, and I'd like to read to you why he destroyed it, because he said he destroyed it because of his desire to avoid contradicting all the histories of the great events of the revolution. Let the world admire the supposed wisdom and valor of our great men. Perhaps they may adopt the qualities that have been ascribed to them, and thus good may be done. I shall not undeceive future generations. That was a little depressing <laughs> to run across that. <laughs> now you have a photo in your book of his gravesite, and it looks like it's on a nice little knoll. Yeah. There's an obelisk there. Yep. Is that, if you're standing there, is, you have a pretty good view of the, of of the, the river? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And now, in a family, a family member moved him there years after he died, and there was a lot of controversy, a dispute in the family about who was going to control his gravesite. He was moved from the old homestead to there uh, back in the 1800s. 
But the, the obelisk is very nice and the knoll yeah. is very nice, but the actual gravestone is in bad shape. It's broken and sunken and broken. and So that's an issue. Now, one of the figures that uh, is in the book who seemed to have a bit of a conflict with a number of the founders was William McClay. And uh, you quote him as saying that he and John Adams did not get along. Uh, and you quote him as say saying that uh, Adams was a monkey just put into breeches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, Adams didn't like McClay. McClay didn't like Adams. Uh, McClay served as, he served uh, in the, in the army, he served uh, and he had, had a great career during the revolution. And then he became, under the first uh, Congress, he became a senator from Pennsylvania, one of our first two senators. And he was in constant, uh, a constant battle with President Washington. At the time, President Washington made it a habit to come to the Senate for debates. McClay didn't like that, didn't think the executive should be present during debates, made that known. He hated Alexander Hamilton's financial plan and bitterly fought against that. And he really didn't get along with Adams at all, as you can tell by that, uh, that quote. And it may have actually affected where this, the capital of, of the country is. Because McClay was pushing for the capital to be placed in Columbia, Pennsylvania, by the Susquehanna River. And there was actually a vote uh, in the Senate between the Potomac location and uh, Columbia, Pennsylvania, and the vote was tied. So Adams got to break the vote. And after extolling what a great location the Potomac was, he dissed the Susquehanna and voted for the Potomac. And, uh, and uh, so McClay may have actually uh, played a part in where our capital uh, ended up, but not where he wanted it to be. <laughs> well, he also called Alexander Hamilton a dishclout of every dirty speculation. <laughs> yes, well, yeah, well, he, he really thought that Hamilton's uh, financial plan was going to be the ruination of the country. Uh, McClay was, uh, one historian says he was the first Democrat, that he actually did more to, fa to fa uh, found the Democratic Party than anybody else. Uh, he certainly had more faith in the people than most of the founders of his time, who went out of their way to make us a republic and a representative republic rather than put the decisions in the hands of the people, which I think is where McClay would have preferred the decisions be made. Um, and of course, the, the, the financial, arguing against Hamilton's financial plan cost him his seat in the Senate because the Pennsylvania uh, State Assembly didn't reelect him because they did favor Hamilton and his plan. In defense of McClay, a lot of people didn't like Adams. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the early uh, troubles, I guess you could say, uh, with the founding of the country was trying to figure out what to call the president. And one of your uh, figures in the book, Frederick Muhlenberg, was the, had a role to play in what we call the president. Yeah, so there was a debate about, uh, you know, th this is the first time we had a, a democratically elected leader in a republic like this and everybody you know in a world full of kings so what do you call the president and uh, there was talk about titles like his excellency and, and things like that and Muhlenberg who was the first speaker of the house said why not just call him Mr. President so I, I think Washington uh, 
was probably called a number of titles every time he walked in a room, but uh, that's how Muhlenberg preferred to address him. And, and it was about keeping it low key, avoiding the perception of monarchy. Now, Muhlenberg's brother is also in the book, Peter. Uh, yeah. Who is he? So Peter Muhlenberg, uh, the Muhlenbergs were descended from Henry Muhlenberg, who founded the Lutheran Church in America, and also from Conrad Weiser, whom uh, they married into the Weiser family. Peter Muhlenberg was a minister, went to Virginia. Uh, then there's a famous story of him giving up his robes and, and joining the military. Trusted uh, soldier under Washington, was um, very close to Washington, very loyal to him throughout the war, became um, a general. Uh, recruited soldiers in Virginia on behalf of the revolution, and he ends up at Yorktown, the very last battle. It's Muhlenberg and Hamilton who lead the charge on Redoubt 10 that turns the tide or finishes the siege. There's controversy. I, I just saw on a TV show uh, a couple days ago where Hamilton gets all the credit for leading the charge. There's others that say, well, Muhlenberg was also involved in that. And I think Muhlenberg was actually higher ranked than Hamilton. But uh, Muhlenberg, a great hero, especially among Pennsylvania Germans, uh, the Muhlenberg family, and very big in the trap area northwest of Philadelphia. And so, uh, but a largely forgotten figure today, Peter Muhlenberg. Now, people are very familiar with uh, the Tomb of the Unknowns down at Arlington Cemetery, but there's also a, a tomb of uh, an unknown soldier for the Revolutionary War in Philadelphia. Uh, wh wh where is that in Philadelphia? I think it's in Washington Park. Um, not too far from Independence, the Independence Hall area. Uh, there's a there's a uh, a park off to the side, very nice uh, park with that with that memorial. Now John Dickinson also features in your book. Uh, Dickinson College, of course, is named after him. Uh, who was he? Well, John Dickinson was uh, a major figure at the time. Uh, he he basically wrote some very very uh, anti-British. Uh, uh, literature back when before the revolution began, uh, which really fermented uh, anti-English uh, feelings in, in the colony, in the colonies actually. And uh, the funny thing is, is that then he became a delegate uh, to the to the convention, and when the declaration uh, was voted on, he voted against it. He didn't believe that we should separate from England, and as a matter of fact, he refused to sign the declaration. Um, and he resigned from, from, from Congress, but then he did actually fight in the Revolution, even though he was a Quaker. He believed, despite being a Quaker, that a defensive war was allowed. So he fought on our side. Uh, he, he thought that his vote against the independence was going to end his career. It turns out it didn't, uh, because he ended up at the uh, Constitutional Convention. He served as both governor of of uh, Pennsylvania and governor of Delaware, um, and uh, and he stayed true to his principles. That's what the the man was. He he owned slaves at one point. Uh, and he freed all his slaves and spent the last 15 years of his life fighting slavery in this country. Uh, a man who definitely stuck by his principles and a true patriot, which Thomas Jefferson pointed out upon Dickinson's death. Now, many of the figures in the book have signed famous documents, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, uh, but Thomas Willing refused to sign the Declaration of Independence. So why? Thomas Willing, well, what I recall about Willing, there, there were congressmen who 
um, when that vote came, they decided uh, they were terrified of breaking with England. Uh, you can imagine the just the gravitas of that decision. Uh, it's the greatest, most powerful nation on earth, the most powerful army, most powerful navy. And so do we really want to break from the motherland? Do we want to work out some kind of compromise? So there were a number of delegates from Pennsylvania and, and some of the other colonies as well that were against independence. They wanted some kind of reconciliation. So what ends up happening is um, they end up all being replaced. And there's a, there's a replacement crew that comes in and they all vote for independence. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush, who signed the declaration, wrote a letter to Ben Franklin in which he recalled, as he referred to it, that solemn day when one by one we approached the desk and signed what well could have been our death warrant. So that's, that's probably one of the reasons some of these people, I mean, it, it, yes. They would be traitors against Britain, against the king. And this was a rebellion. And that's one thing I, I think we take it for granted these days. We don't appreciate just how precarious, how much risk these people took to start a new nation. They really put their lives and fortunes on the line. Had they lost, uh, terrible things would have happened to most of them. Uh, another figure that shows up in the book is Anthony Wayne. People often call him Mad Anthony Wayne. Why was he mad? <laughs> oh, he, he was. <laughs> He's a tremendous story. Um, uh, Anthony Wayne it was a, a much bigger deal than I ever learned that he was. He was. Uh, it became Mad Anthony. Other generals started calling him Mad Anthony because he wanted to fight. Unlike many of our generals who were very reluctant to take on the biggest most best supplied, most disciplined army in that planet. They were a little hesitant to take them on with the continental soldiers and farmers that they had, but not Mad Anthony. He wanted to fight the British, and Washington loved him for that. And he was a very good uh, general. He, he had such integrity. At one point, uh, he, he, some, some generals questioned his tactics at Brandywine, and he demanded a court-martial. He demanded to be court-martialed and, and he went to trial and he was acquitted and, and commended actually for his actions. But he wanted the record clear that, you know, that he hadn't done anything wrong, that in fact he had done aggressive stuff that the other generals criticized. Um, so he, he was one of Washington's favorite generals um, and, and he, uh, after the war the British were supposed to abandon um, uh, forts in, in the West, but they didn't. And so Washington called on uh, Anthony Wayne to go out there and kick them out of the forts, and he did. On his way back, he stopped in Erie and died of gout and was buried in the blockhouse in Erie. Was the blockhouse is like a fortification, and 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 he died and was buried in the in the, the, the <laughs> base of the blockhouse. Yes, he was. <clears throat> okay, so uh, thirteen years go by, and his family wants his remains back home in Wayne, Pennsylvania, and so they uh, they they send his son to get his remains. 
and, a, and his son has a, 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 a cart, a, a horse-drawn cart, and, and travels um, from Wayne, PA, which is near Philadelphia, all the way up to uh, Erie. He, he contacted a doctor who served with Matt Anthony Wayne and was with him when he died. And he said, look, um, I got to get the bones and bring them back home. He said, could you help me? Because you, know, you have more experience with dead bodies and stuff than, and, and anatomy and stuff than I do. And so the doctor agreed to meet him there. He dug up the grave where Mayor Anthony was buried. And to his surprise, only the lower part of one leg had disintegrated. There was, the body still was like intact. And he had brought boxes on the back of, of the vehicle that he was going to put bones in because he thought that's what they would be, bones. And he might have to cut the bones or something and put the bones in. But he didn't expect there to be a body. Stuff, <laughs> stuff on, on, on the bones. And so they debated what to do. And the doctor said, well, uh, the, what we need to do is boil the body and get all the all the stuff off the body. Process called rendering. <laughs> the, uh, so they put him in a, 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 a cauldron yes. and boiled the body and got all the stuff off. This sounds cut, like Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they cut the, the bones apart and, and uh, the cauldron of death it's called and it's on display at the Erie County Museum. Yep. And they put the uh, stuff back in the original hole and he put the bones in the boxes on the back of his cart and went back to Wayne, PA. Well, we're going to have to end on that pleasant note. <laughs> our, our guests have been Joe Farrell and Joe Farley and Lawrence Knorr, the other authors of this book, Pennsylvania Patriots. Thank you all for joining us. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.